This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. In July 2016, a Four Corners report on the treatment of inmates at the Dondale Youth Detention Centre sparked national outrage. It also led to a Royal Commission into the youth justice system in the Northern Territory, with public hearings revealing widespread instances of children being subjected to verbal and physical abuse, humiliation and solitary confinement. Despite this, almost three years on, not a lot has changed. Four Corners has once again set their sights on this issue and has revealed a youth justice crisis in a different part of Australia, with children as young as 10 being held alongside adult criminals in the maximum security facilities. The episode is called Inside the Watch House and screens on ABC TV tonight. And to tell us more, I'm joined on the line by ABC investigative journalist Mark Willisey. Thanks for being there, Mark. G'day, Dylan. And so whereabouts did this specific investigation take place? Well, Dylan, this focused on Queensland. Now, obviously, Queensland's had its issues in the past, and we got a tip-off that kids as young as 10 were being held in what are police watch houses. They're adult maximum security places where adults, often in acute states, you know, with drugs and other issues, are supposed to be held for just 48 hours. And we were told that there were kids being held there, so we started to investigate. And what we found was, yes, that hundreds and hundreds of children are being put in these watch houses every year, basically because Queensland's two youth detention centres are full. So, you know, we're dealing with um, cases... In, in fact, we got 500, more than 500 separate files involving cases with kids being put in isolation, being put in what's called suicide smocks to prevent self-harm. We've had cases where... You know, there's been complaints about a young female placed in a holding area with two alleged male sex offenders. So we began to investigate, and, and in fact, we spent two days and a night filming inside the largest watch house in Brisbane. And uh, I can tell you, it's a it's a pretty wild old ride in there. The police do a pretty good job, Dylan, but um, there's some serious, uh, serious offenders in there. Yeah, it's, it's shocking stuff. And, and what's the sense from people who work in these facilities? I mean, are they really aware of just how, uh, I guess, disgusting is the only word these conditions are for, for young people? Well, that's a, good, that's a good question because, you know, I have to say that the police I dealt with were professional. They did care about the children, um, but they didn't want the children in there because they're dealing with alleged murderers, suspected rapists, child sex offenders, all the way down to people who have been brought in just because they're drunk and disorderly. And they're saying, this facility, we struggle to de-escalate violence in here. The last thing we need is children. We have to keep the children segregated. That can be difficult. Um, you know, and we were speaking to the, the man who runs uh, 63 of all 63 of Queensland's watch houses, the Chief Superintendent, Cameron Harsley. And he's told us that many of his watch house officers are parents themselves. They don't like seeing kids distressed and if they themselves get distressed then he's moving those police out of the watch house to other duties so this is affecting the police too but they can get out the problem is the kids don't they stay in because there's nowhere else for them to go mm. and we heard uh, in as part of the, the royal commission into the dondale um, detention facility and youth justice in northern territory that many of those young people held were on remand so for, for crimes they hadn't yet been convicted of having committed what's the sense of, of these young people in queensland i mean what sorts of crimes are they alleged to have to have participated in yeah, there's some serious crimes. There's every, you know, there's stuff such as unlawful uses of motor vehicles, break and enter, drug offences. There are sex offences as well. The issue is, as you say, the vast majority of these children have been charged but not convicted. They've been remanded in custody and usually they'd be remanded in a youth 
detention centre where, you know, they can they have specialised staff, they can get education, even rehabilitation, psychological care, medical care. In the Watch House, they don't get any of that. The Watch House is not under the Youth Justice Act in Queensland. It is administered by the police under police guidelines. That means they can use isolation, they can use restraints, they can use force. In fact, we, we had a case in one of these files where a child was held in an uh, in isolation in an observation cell for 23 days we've had other cases you know um and and what i have to say too i, I think really important here is a lot of these kids and the police admit this as well have cognitive functioning problems a lot of them have psychological issues um, disabilities there was one 12 year old that was so bad he was deemed unfit to plead because he had the cognitive functioning of someone younger than six years old that's a kid inside a watch house not far from adult hardened offenders. So, you know, not even the police want them in there. Did you get a sense from doing this investigation of the, the types of effects uh, that, that um, you know, the effect this has had on children who have spent quite a long period of time in these watch houses? I mean, what does it mean for them in, in later life or, you know, even months and years later? We, we spoke to the Office of the Public Guardian. That's where we sourced the documents through Freedom of Information. And the, the, the Public Guardian herself, Natalie Siegel-Brown, says this is dehumanising these children. Yes, these children come... Uh, they come into the system. Often they've committed some you know, serious crimes. But often they also come from traumatic backgrounds. Um, there's one file where this kid talks about he's reluctant to even leave the watch house. He finds it safer than his home because his parents are ice addicts. So, yes, um, this is having a traumatic effect on a lot of these kids because Natalie Siegel-Brown, the public guardian, says a lot of them have committed minor crimes, um, you know, some stealing, stuff like that. And, you know, it is having the effects. We've got files um, that uh, point to at least three suicide attempts. Um, we've got other issues involving kid and, uh, kids and trauma. Um, and then there's the physical issues. Um, these kids aren't used to the big watch house environments where they're heavy steel doors. And we, we have a case of a girl's finger being cut off in a door at the Brisbane watch house and a nurse having to pick it up off the floor take the girl to the hospital and she had to uh, have the finger reattached through surgery so these aren't environments that kids are used to even even some of the more hardened kids do you, we have a sense of how long the the juvenile detention facilities in queensland have been full for and for how long children have been kept in these maximum security watch houses children have always according to the police come through the watch house system but only to be processed and then immediately or as quickly as possible moved on to a youth detention center i asked both the, the police and the minister are responsible why the youth detention centres are full, you know, and basically the minister said, well, look, it's because magistrates have ordered these kids to be remanded and we don't have the space. But and I said, well, why don't we have the space? And she said, it's a move last year. Under the old system, 17-year-olds were classified as adults and moved into adult prisons. Mm. Now they've been reclassified as juveniles and moved into... The, the juvenile system, and that means they go to youth detention centres, except they're full. But others don't accept that as a reason. They say this has been a growing problem for, for the last 18 months, and it's often got st other reasons involved. And, and one of them, according to some of the people in tonight's program, is because the union in this state that looks after the officers at youth detention centres, basically, they don't want any extra people in the detention centres, no doubling up of cells as we've seen in the past. So that means the detention centres have a lower capacity, which means there's an oversupply of kids. So these kids end up, as I said, in these watch houses. And I've just got um, through a source today's watch house figures. You know, there's 79 kids across Queensland sitting in watch houses and there is one as young as 10, as we speak, who's been in the Mount Isa watch house for two days already.
We're speaking with ABC investigative journalist Mark Willisy, who's um, the person behind uh, tonight's Four Corners episode, which is called Inside the Watch House, all about the horrible conditions of um, the children being kept in watch houses and, and adult uh, prisons, really, in Queensland. We've heard through the, the Dondow Royal Commission um, and a lot of other reporting as well, of course, that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are incredibly overrepresented in the criminal justice system in Australia. And I think in the Northern Territory last year, there was a period where 100% of detained children were Indigenous. Did you get much of a sense of, from this investigation um, about the kind of disproportionate racial uh, demographics of, of children kept in detention? Yeah, I did, uh, Dylan. It was interesting because I spoke to the Chief Superintendent in charge of all the watch houses in Queensland. His estimate is about 60% of these kids are Indigenous. Um, in fact, um, it often is higher, according to others in the, who work in the system. So, yes, it's not quite as high as the Northern Territory, but the Indigenous kids do make up the, the majority of these kids. And, and talking to the, the community visitors who go inside the watch houses for the Office of the Public Guardian, these people go in to look after the kids, make sure they're okay, see what they need. You know, you're told stories about how kids from the Gulf country, in the Gulf of Carpentaria and the Cape of Queensland, these are remote areas uh, who may have, you know, been involved in a stolen car issue. Uh, they've flown to Brisbane to be held in the watch house down here. They've never been in a plane. They've never left their communities. And this one community visitor told me about a group of 11 and 12-year-old kids from the Gulf that she saw their feet didn't even touch the ground when they were sitting on the, t on the chairs in the watch house and how they had to get um, colouring in books and crayons for these kids inside a maximum security adult watch house. So kids are colouring in inside the Brisbane City watch house. Well, we're almost out of time, Mark, but um, just one final question. Um, almost three years ago, when Four Corners reported on Dondale, there was, of course, a lot of public outrage and the announcement of a royal commission. And as I mentioned in the introduction, despite the NT government talking about implementing many of those recommendations, not a lot has really changed. Do you envisage there will be, I guess, a, a similar response from this uh, Four Corners report on, on Queensland specifically? That's a good question, Dylan. I know that the law society in this state, um, a lot of barristers, uh, people in the child protection system, um, advocates for adult prisoners even, even the police union want this to change. They want kids out of these watch houses because there's a fear that it's only a matter of time before an extremely serious incident, possibly even a fatality, may happen. And then... then there's going to be questions asked. So I, I think the government will find itself under pressure after the Four Corners story goes to air tonight to at least answer questions about what its plans are. We know that they want to build more youth detention centre beds, but they won't come on and lo online for you know probably well over a year. And when they do, they won't even match the numbers of kids that are sitting in watch houses around Queensland today. So I think, yes, I think a lot of answers um, will come out. Whether there'll be any inquiries or not, let's wait and see. Absolutely. Well, good on you for looking into this, Mark, and, and showing a light on the horrendous situation up there and thanks so much for joining us on Triple R today to talk about it. Thanks for having me Dylan, cheers. Pleasure. Mark Willisy there, ABC investigative journalist talking about tonight's episode of Four Corners called Inside the Watch House which screens at 8.30pm and is repeated uh, throughout the week across ABC's channels and of course you can catch it on iView as well. In the era of Donald Trump's presidency much has been written about the societal health of the United States today and the extent to which the divisiveness economic and racial inequality and often bizarre tenor of public debate reflects a nation in decline. But as journalists have turned their 
their attention inward to the machinations of Washington, D.C., and particularly to the president's Twitter feed, the story of everyday America, that is, the reality of life in communities across the sprawling nation, has not been closely examined. Thankfully, though, US correspondent and contributing editor of the monthly magazine, Richard Cook, has intervened in this trend. In his debut book, Tired of Winning, A Chronicle of American Decline, which is out through Black Ink, he takes us on a romp through 20 of America's 52 states, exploring issues as diverse as the opioid crisis, water poisoning, mass shootings, and somewhat surprisingly, his adoration for the paintings of George W. Bush. Richard is currently in Melbourne, and he joins me today in the studio. Welcome to Triple R. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be here. And so this book is a series of dispatches from different places across the United States, and and many of these pieces have been published in the monthly and elsewhere as well. So you haven't so much tried to provide a definitive, definitive account of America today, but rather encapsulate the kind of fragmentary experiences of American life. Why did you go with that approach? Uh, That's a good question, and it's something that I thought about a lot before I left for the US. I was reading foreign correspondent journalism and finding it kind of not super satisfactory um, because people were a bit lodged on the East Coast and um, also fixated on the presidency. And I'd spent enough time in America to feel like that wasn't really where the story was. But I also thought it would be of limited use just to go over there and file standard reports about different things that I was seeing. So I went for a kind of hybrid approach of like essays by correspondence, I guess you could say. There's a lot of reporting in them and there's a lot of reportage pieces, especially towards the end of the book. But I wanted to string these together into a kind of mosaic picture of what America looks like at the moment. Yeah, and and some issues would be familiar to people. I mean, you talk about gun violence and the opioid crisis and water poisoning in Flint, Michigan, for example, which are all fairly large stories. But the final story in the book is one that really um, grabbed my attention, a story I'd not read about or heard about before, and that centres on an ex-serviceman who killed a series of of sex workers around the kind of Mexico-US border. Tell us about that story. I mean, how did you come across that and why is that in this book? Well, I think that it is probably the single most underreported story in America. And this is a spree killer called Juan David Ortiz. Um, He was actually a US Border Patrol agent, a current serving agent, um, when he committed the murders. And I was following this story and I kept thinking that someone would write a definitive piece about it, that they would go... You know, there was that initial flurry of, of pieces in the New York Times and then it just stopped and the the feature length treatment never arrived and at any other time that would have been a, a year defining perhaps even a even a decade defining story i mean this is a a law enforcement officer serial killer um who committed his crimes with his service weapon and because of trump and because of the other issues around the border it just disappeared and so Um, The US Guardian commissioned me, you know, I requested that they send me there to go and report on it and spent quite a bit of time with with the victims' families and quite a bit of time sort of seeing this strange world on the border and thinking about his action as a kind of uh, aspect, I guess, of border violence. 
And so why is it, do you think, that that story hasn't really taken hold? I mean, the, the border crisis has been very, you know, written about um, a great deal, both in the United States and internationally as well. I mean, Trump dominates the news cycle over there because of his outrageous tweets and that yeah. kind of thing. But, but why does a story like this not grab the nation's attention? Part of it is that the victims were from a marginalised group. They weren't actually... Um, uh, they weren't actually migrants, you know. They were they were Mexican Americans, um, but because they were sex workers, um, one of them was a trans woman. Uh, I think that that sort of you know they have less social uh, currency surrounding them, so that people were able to. It was more forgettable for that reason. It's also because the consciousness of America is very often focused away from places like the towns in Texas. Mm that are on the us Mexico border. Unless it's a story about something like smuggling or cartel violence or a refugee caravan, it doesn't sort of get very much attention. Um, even, even the West Coast can sometimes feel like it doesn't get very much attention compared to other places. So this is really, you know, things that happen in Texas often don't sort of make the national news in quite the same way, or if they do, don't get the same traction, I guess. Mm. It, it reminded me of another chapter in your book where you were writing about the, the water poisoning incident in Flint, Michigan. So this is where water was diverted um, from Lake Huron and the Detroit River to um, a less costly source of Flint River, which resulted in, in widespread poisoning of, of people in that particular city. And, and you write about how some of the stories around this and also about the, the declining industry in places like Detroit, for example, are a sort of ruin porn and that yeah. these stories have lost the ability to incite change. It's not that the stories don't exist, but they don't motivate governments or people to really demand change. I think that's right. And, and Flint is something which is often discussed in this way that it's not like sort of historical environmental crises where, you know, you have to sort of rebuild the dam using pickaxes or whatever the means are all there you know there are billionaires who live in in flint not that it's it's their job to fix it but all the money and resources and ability and technology is present it's just the will that is lacking and and that's partly because you know you end up with this systemic failure when none of the none of the powerful aspects of the system are really interested in in helping out the less powerful or the least powerful in this case. Is that emblematic of a failure of the public sector in the United States? Yeah, uh, it's also um, reflective of a philosophical failure. Once you have an anti-government philosophy of that extremity, then you start to think that government can't do anything at all. You know, I had people sort of say stuff to me like, I met a guy in West Virginia who had survived a hurricane and um, he was actually blown out of a window by the storm and said that he thought he'd been saved by an angel. And he said that things were different now because now when there was a hurricane, people expected the government to come and clean up. And I was kind of like, well, isn't that what it's for? You know, that, that's a very fundamental function of government, disaster cleanup, because it can't be performed by just people doing it themselves you know mm. you can't just grab a shovel and clear it out you need collective action 
But for him, that that was sort of like almost emasculating that that prospect was was the default. I found that very strange. Yeah, I've been to the United States quite a few times. It's probably the country outside of Australia that I've spent the most time. And a lot of this book really resonated with me in terms of trying to come to terms with with society over there and grappling with the contradictions that seem to run through American society. And, And there's one line where you say, America is not a high trust society. It is polite but suspicious, sometimes to the point of paranoia. And that really resonates because you do find, I mean, as, you know, a white Australian male going over there, I found a great deal of politeness, yet there is this entrenched paranoia about government and suspicion of what the government may do to you and and wants to do to you to curtail your rights and so on yeah absolutely and and that dovetails with a lot of extremely conspiratorial thinking you know like the prevalence of conspiracy theories in contemporary united states is just unreal it's as soon as you sort of get out of a major city or even if you're talking to particular people in one everybody just buys into these you know, crazy theories about how things work. And that's because they feel correctly that they have little agency over their own lives. But the shadowy forces they select are are never the right ones. Mm. Speaking with Richard Cook, uh, author and US correspondent and contributing editor for The Monthly, which speaking today all about his brand new debut book, Tired of Winning, a Chronicle of American Decline. And you talk a little bit about the education system in the United States, particularly in relation to the rise of the cult of Jordan Peterson, yes. um, a psychologist who has, has gained a lot of support, not just in the United States, but in Australia and across the world as well. In what ways does, I guess, that, that paranoia where speaking about and lack of trust in government and the great deal of faith some people particularly men white men have thrown in somebody like jordan peterson what does that tell us about education and the state of education in the states i think that um i mean to give you a a kind of real life example something we were talking about last night that you can sort of it's very easy to start thinking of philosophy and literature and these sorts of things as, I guess, uh, you know, not having a lot of utility, that that they, they're not, you know, it's good to know about them, but in a, quite an abstract sense. But when I was in America and trying to make sense of what I was seeing, you can't do it by logic alone. You know, you need to turn to kind of aesthetics and, and understandings of the the sort of fundamentals of, of uh, politics and part of that is philosophy. So I, I was sort of even surprised myself that the, the people I was returning to were writers like J.G. Ballard, who, you know, you wouldn't pick as being your sort of guidebook to contemporary America, a book written, you know, 50 years mm. ago. The Atrocity Exhibition was one which I sort of found made most sense of what I was seeing because it was about the intersection of technology and desire and that's a lot of what's driving these changes um i think jordan peterson i mean we won't get too deep into him because it's a whole other conversation conversation. (laughs) but what what has happened is that you've had people sort of brought up in an education system which tries to prepare people for the workforce Uh, even universities like that to a degree especially if you work in a field which is outside the humanities, you know, if you, if you hadn't done a humanities degree. And so it's quite possible. And there's no sort of, I guess, like osmosis. 
you're not absorbing even like religious instruction in the same way in a lot of places. Um, so you can complete school and sometimes even complete university with this very shriveled um, understanding of the, the philosophical basis of the world. And when someone like Jordan Peterson comes along who has, I think in some ways, especially in some areas, quite a superficial understanding of those things and you feel an ideological affinity with him, it's very easy to just, like, fill in the gaps, you know, and, and that's what you see people doing. Uh, it's very strange that here's someone who garnered this huge following because he was unwilling to be legally compelled to use trans people's preferred names. And because of that, millions of people all over the world have signed up to Jungian psychology. Like, that is bizarre. Those two things have absolutely nothing to do with each other. But people sort of buy the box set, you know. <laughs> it's an interesting way of putting it because, because you do see that happening. You see somebody um, purportedly being a, a champion of free speech and, and so on and saying the unsayable. And we have uh, examples of that in Australia, of course, in the lead up to, to the federal election. But people buy in to the whole, the whole package. It's not just one thing they may agree with. It's like, well, I am part of Brand Peterson now. Exactly. And look, I think a lot of people do that to some extent that, you know, you only have to look at sort of the relationship between vegetarianism and left-wing politics, which is old enough that people like George Orwell were, were writing about it. People do tend to have a set of beliefs and not just pick and mix. Speaking with Richard Cook all about his brand new book, Tired of Winning, A Chronicle of American Decline. And we haven't spoken, I guess, explicitly about Trump per se. And I guess that's a deliberate that's focus a of your, your book. Yeah. That's right. Is not to just drill down on Trump um, and Trumpism, I guess. But uh, you write, and, and some other authors and commentators have picked up on this as well, that the real story in Trump's America was not so much the change when he was elected, but the continuity. And there has been a tendency in some circles to see Trump as an aberration, as someone not coming from the political establishment. But in what way does he represent a, a continuity of, I guess, um, uh, issues or, or trends or, or feelings of alienation and so on in American society? And how long have they been sort of bubbling away for? Um, well, I think they've been bubbling away since the beginnings of America. Um, and obviously, you know, the composition of American democracy, it, you can't say that it's reliant on racial resentment, but racial resentment is absolutely imperative to understand it and for it to function in the way that it does. And, you know, I think that the key to understanding America and it's, there's no one key, but this is the thing that I kept returning to, is that Americans believe America is providential, you know, that it is created... It's, it's a place which is founded by, you know, essentially religious extremists, you know, by Puritans um, who went there as an experiment which could have easily failed. And then you have kind of subsequent experiments within that. So, like, Pennsylvania is founded on the principle of religious toleration, for example, that, that anyone can go there and freely express their beliefs. And the, this is, at the time, almost like the fringe of the fringe. Um, and the fact that it succeeds make, makes people think that, that God is involved. And the involvement of God, and this is a, you know, a very um, Calvinist idea, it's that essentially people get their just desserts. You know, you, you can look at someone's station in life and know 
what that they're there for a reason you know that's everything happens for a reason is a very very pernicious idea with all kinds of nasty implications and the the clearest one it has in the US is that if someone is rich they deserve it and if someone is poor they deserve it um, and that plays out in all kinds of you know really profound implications and and Trump is reflective of that so it seems at first, and, you know, this is something which drives liberals in America crazy. They really, really hate that he's behaved so unpresidentially. Uh, but the fact that he's rich or appears to be rich is evidence of his efficacy. It's like enough by itself. And a lot of Trump's behaviours, which make very little sense elsewhere, make sense if you think of them as a businessman behaving in this manner and and over and over and over again i heard people uh, you know trump supporters all over america just emphasize this deal making businessman aspect of him as being like absolutely key is that why people are willing to uh, not prioritize some of trump's moral failings and things he's said about women for example and yeah. that's something we've seen in in the hearings around brett kavanaugh as well um, and also uh, Dennis Hoff in, in Nevada. Yes. How do we, I mean, how do we account for those contradictions that there are these people who say quite horrible things, yet they may still uh, gain support from the evangelical Christian groups, for example? Um, I think that that is to do with racial affiliation largely. Mm. Um, although, you know, some evangelical, evangelical pastors I spoke to were quite, you know, um, praise, uh, they, they like respected Obama's character, but they didn't warm to him. And they might not warm to Trump, but there's a, there's a tradition in Christianity of, and, and they talk about this explicitly, people like um, St Paul or Cyrus the Great or King David, where you have these people who are kind of not very godly that God chooses as their instrument. And so that's how they're able to... You know, there's people who genuinely believe... There's actually something called the Trump prophecy, which is a belief that um, people had visions that Trump would become president. There's like a movie about it and stuff, a book, mm, wow. where firemen had this vision that Trump would be... God told him that Trump would be president and Liberty University made a terrible movie about it. Fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> um, you also, um, in one chapter, recount your experience of going to a gun range and, and guns and gun culture is one of those really kind of, uh, I guess, foundational aspects of, of American society and something that I've learned really to avoid discussing with people, but sometimes yes. it, it comes up without you wanting it to because of the notoriety of Australia's gun laws and that kind of thing. Do you see the current culture around guns and, and the need to have a gun as being fundamentally different from what it has been in the United States in decades past? Yes, absolutely. It, it's clearly very different. You know, the, the way that people treat guns... Um, the the laws around the things like um, concealed carry laws and open carry laws, you know, and and the way that they have been invoked are very different. I mean, even some, when I, when I was in West Virginia, um, it's quite common for people there to conceal carry. You know, I was speaking to an Australian cafe owner um, quite a bit, and he concealed carried, and and it was partly because he wanted to be able to protect himself if he was if he was robbed. But it's also just because it's just what you do. 
And it's it's remarkable, like, you know, I talk about going to firing ranges and sort of learning a little bit about guns and it becomes almost like a like sport or weather style conversation in some places, you know, where someone will tell you what their gun is and you'll know a little bit about it and you'll ask them something about it. It's just that sort of chit-chat um, because it's just so ubiquitous. Mm. Is there underlying that uh, a fear of, of, I guess, society at large and a suspicion of fellow citizens? Yeah, I think so, and, and particularly suspicion of the government. It's easy to forget that armed insurrection against the government in the United States or, you know, other powerful forces is not just something that happened during the um, Revolutionary War um, or the Civil War. Like, um, in in Appalachia, there was a armed miners' rebellion um, which involved a million rounds of ammunition being expended. Mm. You know, the Battle for Blair Mountain where... The government was basically like dropping bombs out of people, dropping bombs out of planes onto onto striking miners. So there's there's a very strong folk memory of, of that sort of thing. Um, there's also I think guns sort of become an argument in their own favour. There's people do talk about the prospect of another civil war in America, and it was something that. I was asked about even by people you would not expect. You know, like historians sort of saying, do you think that that's on the cards for us? Mm. Um, Why would they ask you that out of interest? I mean, as some as an outsider or...? Yeah, just, just they're looking for an outsider's perspective. Um, and they might think that they're exaggerating the fear or, or underestimating the fear. They, they want someone who's seeing it fresh. And um, I think it's a non-trivial prospect. I hope it doesn't happen, but I think it you've got to price it a little bit higher than it's being priced at the moment. And people who own guns kind of think to themselves well our side will win you know i don't think mm. that's a thought that you can just dismiss out of hand like what what has happened is that the left in america has really precluded that possibility but it's it's not impossible mm. speaking with richard cook all about his brand new debut book tired of winning a chronicle of american decline which is a series of dispatches creating a sort of mosaic of, of american society today and uh, i guess on that that note of, of being asked your opinion, your perspective on, on American society. What was it like for you as an Australian going around the country and speaking to people? I mean, how were you received? Uh, very warmly, yeah. And and I sort of talk about that a little bit in the introduction that I think I often had a warmer reception than American journalists who were treated with a lot more suspicion. I've heard Louis Thoreau say a similar thing, that as a kind of British, you know, white male going over there, that people do warm to him, are kind of curious about his perspective. Absolutely. And and I think Australians are, are sort of generally well-liked there. Um, and, you know, being white, people said things to me that they might not say to others. Um, but also I think that people think Australians are a bit dumb. So sometimes that can work to your benefit. The Crocodile Dundee mythology still persists. Completely. And and I, I found that just by kind of a process of natural selection that my accent did broaden, especially when I was speaking to people in kind of Trump country, mm. because just unconsciously they were responding it to it better. 
Fascinating. Um, and, and I guess politically in the United States now, you write that when you were over in the United States before, during and, and after Trump's election in, in 2016, you left not really knowing what to think about the country. And I guess now, having had the midterms and, um, and you know, which went in, in the Democrats' favour, particularly in, in the House and so on, I mean, how do we read that? Do we take that as a public mood shifting or is that just simply uh, the way that these political kind of fluctuations go in American society at large and, and does it not really reflect much of a change at all? Look, I think that it does reflect a change. Uh, it particularly reflects a motivation among female voters. And there's there's one sort of statistic, I guess, I talk about in the book, um, which is really a remarkable story about gender in America and other places, but America in particular. Mm. And if you go back to sort of the 1990s and you look at white working-class men and college-educated women, they vote in pretty similar ways. You know, they're, they're both a, a group of people who are sort of like mildly democratic voting, right? And if you look now, those two groups have a 70-point gap. So, you know, the, the men are, are sort of quite likely to vote Republican and the women are overwhelmingly likely to vote Democratic. Mm. And that is a, a huge change. And an interesting thing to keep in mind around the, the Democrat primaries as well, about which candidate will manage to tap into that consciousness and, and gain enough support to become the candidate. Yeah, absolutely. And and look, there's, there's certainly a lot of women in America who feel that they miss this opportunity with Hillary Clinton. And America is still, I mean, not just America, but especially rural and regional America where people are religious. There's a real belief that, you know, a man should be the head of the family. And I'm, I'm sure that translates into a belief that a man should be the head of the nation as well. Mm. Um, in the brief time we have left, I want to also talk a little bit about your recent article in, in the monthly, the cover story for the, the, the current edition of the monthly. But I guess as a way into that, um, can we talk a bit about the, the power of media in the United States and particularly News Corp and the Murdoch Empire? In yes. what way has that influenced American society and, and the cult of Trumpism? Well, I think that um, it's easy to sound a bit hysterical when you start talking about this. So you have to start with the studies. It sounds a bit boring, but the the studies on the way that Fox News but changes people's behaviour is really, really compelling. They are really, really compelling. Um, Fox News is able to retain viewers, especially elderly viewers, in a way that other networks aren't. Like, if you start off watching more than one, you're sort of likely to, um, if you're over 65, start being sort of drawn to Fox News. And Fox News is likely to change beliefs and it's likely to change voter behaviour as well. So th- this has been estimated as being like a 2 to 4% kind of um, tailwind that assists the Republican Party. And you can see that electorally, that, that's hugely significant. If that wasn't there, then Democrats would have won every presidential election since Fox News was instituted. Now, you can't just go pure kind of cause and effect, but when I was meeting people, especially in places like Florida... If they were over 65 and taking medication and watched Fox News, they were functionally mentally unstable. Like, that, that's wow. not a joke. It, it, they're actually, like, so paranoid and hopped up on these conspiracy theories that 
it's almost impossible to have a, a reasoned conversation or even find out what the parameters of that would look like. Are there any signs of an antidote to that in the United States? Uh, not really. Um, I, I think that it's it's going to stick around. You know, it, it is sort of managing a hostile takeover of aspects of society. So people have, you know, especially there's a, a few articles about this recently where people are just unable to do stuff like talk to their own parents, you know, because they're just watching this TV all the time, which is poisoning their brains pretty much. Mm. And for anyone who's seen Fox News, I mean, it's blatantly partisan and and uh, uh, perpetrates a lot of falsehoods and so on. But yeah. here in Australia, we've, I think, had a fairly laissez-faire approach to our news media, which has been dominated by, um, by you know, corporate interests over years. And we've had a high media concentration in this country. Yeah. But there's been, I think, an assumption on our part that our media isn't as extreme as it has been, for example, in the United States in, in more recent years. In your, um, your current article in, in the monthly magazine, you talk about the incredible power of the Murdoch Empire in Australia and the way that it has caused, I guess you could say, a, a degradation or malaise in Australian society and influenced us here too. Look, I think that's accurate. I, I don't think that they are sort of a puppet master pulling the strings about everything which happens mm. um, in Australia, but are they a detrimental force which adversely affects not just left-wing political parties, but, you know, like a huge reason behind the effective expulsion of the moderates from the Liberal Party is this hold that, you know, Sky News in particular is starting to have. And that that is directly modelled on Fox News. And it's also being shown on free-to-air television in Australia now through the Wind Network. And that is, a, a you know, I believe an existential threat to democracy in Australia if what has played out in the United States plays out here. Mm. And do you see signs that it is playing out here? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's an explicit strategy when you have someone like Chris Kenny moving from nighttime uh, sky, you know, so-called sky after dark to daytime sky. This is a sign that the David Spears of the world are an endangered species. Uh, even Fox during the day can be pretty reasonable, but this is a, an attempt to remake society, which has been successful elsewhere. And, and I really think it has to be fought tooth and nail. And there have been some in the wake of your article, and it's, it's quite brave, I think, for a, a journalist to take on the Murdoch Empire and, and Murdoch, Murdoch newspapers in Australia, because there can be a kind of unspoken reluctance to do so within the kind of journalist fraternity. Yeah, I mean, it's also a reluctance because you know that they're going to be retributive you know that mm. you know that they're going to go after you and it's not so bad for someone like me but when you know especially people of color when their inboxes just fill up with filth afterwards that is you know really a terrorizing experience and i don't use that word lightly um so i'm encouraged that people have responded by showing some balls for once yeah. showing some gonads it's not just women, uh, not just men rather, who, who have made these kind of stands. Yeah, and current and former employees of, of, of News Corp have come out and said that, you know, there have been uh, directives to report in a certain way and very yes. difficult situations they find, them, find themselves in where they've had to really push back on superiors and editors to present news truthfully. Absolutely. And, you know, stories being changed without their permission. Um, it's 
the, the way that this this operation operates is is abundantly clear, you know, and it doesn't operate like a real news organisation. Mm. And I guess having um, spent quite a bit of time in, in the United States and, and spoken to a whole range of different people over there and taken in as much as possible. Do you feel like you understand the country better than when you were over there in 2016? I hope so, but I also, I don't have a grand thesis in this book. I think that people, I hope that people can learn a lot about America, but you, you can't just come back and say, you know, boil it down into a, into a sentence. It's too big. It's too complicated. Um, it's too varied, you know, like the the difference between somewhere like Laredo, Texas and Flint, Michigan is just vast. It's like two different countries, you know. America is, it's been said, it's, it's more like a world than a country and um, some of its cities are more like countries than cities, so it, it's irreducible. Mm. And how would you describe your relationship to the United States? It's complicated. <laughs> um, look, I it, it's a love-hate. I know that's a cliche, um, but I think that you can't discount the... You, you can't sort of say that, you know, the ideas of American freedom are just, you know, propagandistic nonsense. Like, I spoke to a, a guy right at the end of um, the trip who's a rocket scientist and who's involved in a lot of um, NASA's most important projects, things like the Mars rover. And he worked on a team which is drawn from people all over the world. Um, you know, they had Chinese people, they had Indian people, they had Americans, they had Japanese people, the works. And um, I said to him, what held your team together? And he said, the US Constitution. Mm. And I, I don't think that's something that you can just sort of say is cheesy or false you know like american democratic ideals are meaningful and real and and it's that degradation of them you know which has always been there that absence of kind of fulfilled promise which is partly what makes the relationship to it emotionally complicated. Absolutely. And do you feel there's enough there in the constitution or in american culture that could serve as a galvanising force to kind of reverse this decline that you track in this book or, or serve as a kind of reset, I guess, to, to prevent the types of issues and, and, and chronic inequality that, that pervades American society? The That's the key question. The key question is, is American freedom relative to other people, especially other members of American society, being subordinate? Is it actually a kind of feudal system in which you only feel free if others are punished, if others are unfree? Or is it something where emancipation can be full and complete and enfranchisement can be full and complete? And that's the struggle. It's been enlightening speaking to you, Richard Cook. We're big fans of all your writing here at Triple R. So Thank it's a, been a pleasure having you here in the studio and hope to see you again here sometime soon. I love that. Thanks a lot, Dylan. Thanks. Cheers. The book is called Tired of Winning, A Chronicle of American Decline by Richard Cook, who also is the US correspondent and contributing editor for the monthly magazine. The book is currently out through Black Ink. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.